Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, one habit that I have been uh, attempting, at least, to practice more frequently this year is the lost art of letter writing. Uh, I, of course, still send emails and texts like everyone else, but, but I do find that there is something uniquely meaningful for people about receiving a handwritten letter. I mean, for one thing, just on my end, writing by hand forces me to slow down and to really consider what it is that I want to communicate more carefully. But additionally, I think that we find receiving a handwritten letter more meaningful because, well, for one thing, it's just so out of the ordinary this, these days. Like, we don't receive many of them. Uh, it also feels more human to us. And I think we all know it requires a lot more time and work than just sending a mere text message. Now, one thing I've learned is that maybe the most important part of a well-written letter is the conclusion. And the reason that the conclusion is so important is that what a person learns last has a way of lingering the longest. Cognitive psychologists actually have a name for this. It's called the recency effect. It's the tendency to remember the most recently presented information best. And this is why... When you come to the conclusion of a letter you're writing, you should work with the utmost care to convey the most significant idea, uh, sentiment, or takeaway that you want to leave rattling around in your reader's mind. And so as we come to the concluding chapter of Peter's first letter, he leaves us with a potent promise meant to provide context for and to even carry us through our most difficult days of life. And so here's the promise from Peter that I want you to consider this morning, and maybe even write this down. It's our big idea, so grab something to write on, something to write with, and make a note of this big idea. Every momentary suffering will eventually be eclipsed by the satisfaction of eternity with Christ. Every momentary suffering will eventually be eclipsed by the satisfaction of eternity with Christ. I want you to just consider that promise for a second. Think about how amazing that is, if that's true. Because it, what it tells us is that, that, that no matter how difficult the suffering, no, no matter how painful the experience that we might walk through this side of eternity, that a day will come, a moment will come where we will look into the very real eyes of Jesus and all of that pain and all of that difficulty and all of that suffering will be eclipsed by the satisfaction the joy and the hope and the love that fills our hearts as we look into his eyes. It's incredible. And one of the things that I love most about Peter's letter is how honest he is about real life in a broken world. Like sin makes suffering a part of life. 
And following Jesus faithfully, as we have studied and read and seen, it it guarantees us unique experiences with suffering. And so what I love about Peter is there's just like no simple cliches in what he writes. He never tries to divert attention away from the reality of suffering the way that so much of modern Christian instruction does. Instead, Peter's always honest about suffering. He he places it in the context of God's purpose for it, while at the same time reminding us that all of our suffering is temporary. But you know, the real problem with suffering is that it suffocates our ability to maintain perspective. So in the midst of suffering, the pain is all we can process. It consumes us, and it's like it it cuts off our ability to see much, if anything, beyond it. And so the gift that we have in Peter's closing encouragement is that it provides us an eternal perspective, not just an immediate right now, what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through perspective. He, he, He provides us an eternal perspective in what, against the backdrop of eternity, will really only be momentary suffering. And so Peter this morning prescribes where we should focus our attention in the here and the now, as well as promises us that there are genuinely better days ahead. And so if you have not yet and you have one around, do me a favor and open a Bible or a Bible app and go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are going to close out this letter this morning and study all of 1 Peter 5. And I want to talk this morning about an eternal perspective in momentary suffering. Eternal perspective in momentary suffering. Now, Peter is going to address two groups in these churches. He's going to speak to leaders, and then he's going to speak to the church in general. And so I want you to notice that Peter starts with a closing encouragement to leaders. A closing encouragement to leaders. Now, turn your eyes to the text, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Peter writes this. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Notice what he says, verse 2, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's going to use a similar pattern for his closing encouragement to both groups. He is going to prescribe specific instruction, and he is going to follow that with a critical promise. And he starts again by addressing the elders of these churches. Now, this title, elder, comes from a Greek word that can refer to both leaders in the church, but then also just people who are literally older in age. And it would seem that Peter has both of those groups in mind here. But what I want you to notice is that Peter here says nothing of what qualifies someone to be a leader in the church. He also says nothing about how many leaders there should be in a church. He says nothing about uh, how leaders should be identified, trained, or organized. And it's not because none of those things are important, and it's not that that instruction does not exist elsewhere in the New Testament. That is just not Peter's focus. Instead, he focuses all of his attention on what they're responsible for and how they should carry out that responsibility. And in so doing, 
Peter uses a leadership metaphor that is common in scripture. He says that they are to shepherd God's flock. Now, this image of God's people as sheep is especially drawn from the Psalms. So if you were to go read places like Psalm 23, Psalm 78, Psalm 95, Psalm 100, this metaphor is everywhere. And I, I want to just say that there may be no more unfairly stereotyped animal in the animal kingdom than the sheep. I mean, think about it. It is, it is like never a compliment in our culture when someone is referred to as a sheep right? No one's ever been like, you're such a sheep. And you're like, oh, thank you. You've never felt that before. It's an insult in our country, in our country, in our culture. It implies a mindless, helpless, stupid creature. And the problem is sheep are none of those things. In fact, sheep are actually quite intelligent. A 2001 study found that sheep can recognize and remember upwards of 50 individual faces for at least two years, which is actually more than many humans. Furthermore, an Australian researcher found sheep quite capable of navigating very complex mazes. Researchers at the University of California found that sheep also form very close social bonds and they stick up for and they defend the weaker in their midst. And they also are not defenseless. They have a fierce ability to kick. They can run fast. They can scale cliffs. And I learned this this week. This is crazy. Due to their horizontal slit-shaped pupils, they can actually see behind themselves without even having to turn their heads. Now, I guess I'm realizing in this moment, I have become like a massive fan of sheep. But all of this to say that I want to write this perception of sheep as a metaphor for stupid and defenseless followers of God that so many have imported into the scriptures. Now, that being said, uh, domesticated sheep thrive when they are shepherded well. In Greco-Roman culture, a shepherd's life was spent with their sheep, and they were responsible for the care, the nourishment, and the protection of those sheep. And so Peter takes this imagery that would have been so familiar to his readers and he holds it up a picture for pastoral ministry. And it also provides us with some context for how Peter says that we are to shepherd as leaders in the local church, not out of compulsion, meaning not out of some sort of personal religious obligation, but, but willingly and joyfully not out of greed to swindle people from their money, as so many have done, but out of an eager desire to be helpful to people, not in a way that would ever lord position and authority in a domineering manner, but by offering a humble example of what it looks like to just follow Jesus in real life. And I want you to know that, that sadly, like many of you, I personally have seen and I have been hurt by the very inverse form, inverse form of leadership that Peter calls us to here. So I, I personally, I have been lied to by pastors. I have been yelled at, verbally berated, and cursed at by pastors. I have been forced into situations that made me feel uncomfortable by pastors. I've seen pastors that I respected, that I trust, trusted, and that I loved disappoint me and disappoint countless others by living immoral lives that eventually cost them the privilege of their own ministries. And, and so I share this this morning 
to highlight how familiar I am personally with so much of the distrust and skepticism that people feel for spiritual leadership. I mean, this distrust is sadly very well earned. But what I think is so helpful to us in Peter's instruction to leaders here is the reminder to look for character over charisma in our leaders. If a leader has both character and charisma, that's fine. But we got to get our priority right in this. Because what happens is, oftentimes we get so enamored by a person's gifts, by their charisma, by their teaching gifts, their speaking gifts, their ability to cast vision, their, their warmth, and their ability to attract people to themselves. We just get so enamored by those things that we overlook the absence of many things that are far more important. Character attributes like humility and love and sacrifice. But Peter does promise that when these Christ-like characteristics mark our leadership, that Jesus, the chief shepherd over all of us, will provide faithful spiritual leaders with an eternal, unfading crown of glory. Now, in this culture, in their culture, crowns typically consist, consisting of woven foliage served as recognition of high status or distinguished public service. Yet despite their beauty and their significance, the, the things that made up these crowns also died, the way that any flower in a vase eventually dies. And so by way of contrast, Peter promises an unfading reward for a job well done awaits faithful spiritual leaders in eternity. And I can honestly say, after almost 20 years of spiritual leadership in various forms, this is still very much the crown I'm after and that I ask God daily to make me fit for. Peter wants local church leaders to know that they have the high responsibility to shepherd God's people and that they will suffer in so doing, but that every momentary suffering will eventually be eclipsed by the satisfaction of eternity with Christ. And then finally, notice that Peter ends with, a closing encouragement to the church. A closing encouragement to the church. Now look with me at verse 5. Peter continues, he says, In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. All right. Notice now that Peter shifts his attention and his instruction to the church at large. So it's not just leaders anymore. He's talking to everybody in these churches and he is pleading for three practices, reciprocal humility, sober-minded alertness, and active resistance to spiritual attack. And so let's just look at these three briefly this morning. First, Peter praises the importance of humility. He calls those who are younger to practice respectful humility toward those who are older, as well as calling all Christians to humble themselves 
under God's hand in relationship with one another. And Peter is also painfully clear regarding why humility is so critical in our lives and in our relationships. God actively resists those who practice pride. Think about that for a second. Every time I read this, I think about a frustrating experience I had as a young boy and that I now even subject my own children to as a dad myself. I remember wrestling with my dad when I was a little kid, but because he was so much stronger than I was, he could always keep me at bay with little to no effort, and it drove me nuts. Now as a dad myself, there have been times where I've paid that forward, where I'm wrestling with my kids and they try to get a leg up on me and all I have to do is put a hand on their forehead and all of their attempts are totally foiled. So they can fight and they can struggle and they can swing at me, but it's all to no avail. Now that image is funny in a playful parent-child wrestling match. But I got to tell you, it is frightening when we consider God's active resistance to our pride. See, pride isn't just arrogance that has a higher view of oneself than what's healthy. Pride is demanding one's own way. Pride is choosing the need to be right over the good of a relationship. Pride is choosing your own comfort over the needs of another. And when we live out this pride, God's hand is on our heads in active resistance to us because he loves us and he knows that pride poisons the soul. Now, that's not all. The second practice that Peter calls us to is a sober-minded alertness specifically that we would be alert and awake to the reality that we live in a very real spiritual realm and that we have a spiritual enemy. See, when it comes to the scripture's teaching on the spiritual realm in general, and the, uh, the devil in particular, we are prone to one of two errors in modern culture. The first is denying or ignoring the fact that we have a spiritual enemy who is bent on our destruction. And I want you to know, we do. And sometimes that just sounds like this like superstitious nonsense to modern ears. But the New Testament author, Paul, warns us in Ephesians 6, 12, warning, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. In my own lifetime, I have seen and I have experienced things I cannot explain apart from there being a very real spiritual realm. I have seen people both oppressed and even possessed by demonic forces. I have personally had seasons of overt spiritual attack in my own life and ministry through things like demonic dreams. And I don't speak about it very often, but I've experienced these things since I was a very young child. And this is not just the stuff of scary movies. There is a real spiritual realm that we must acknowledge. But there's a second error that we make when it comes to the spiritual realm. And that is an over-occupation with it. 
So for instance, I grew up in the Pentecostal stream of Christianity, and much of that I'm deeply thankful for. But one behavior that I saw over and over was a tendency to over-spiritualize everything, specifically by going looking for a demon behind every single door. So every hardship and every season of suffering was seen as the result of direct attack from the devil himself. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. The first is uh, the devil is not omnipresent. Unlike God, he cannot be in one more than one place at a time. So the likelihood the devil himself has anything to do with you and I personally is slim to none. That's not to say that there are not very real demonic forces that do work in and around our lives, but the likelihood that it's the devil himself is next to nothing. Furthermore, this tendency forgets that we also live in a broken world and that people are capable of great sin and evil. So to summarize, not every bad day is demons, but not every hardship that we go through is entirely natural either. We have to be aware and alert to the fact that we have a very real spiritual enemy while never neglecting the natural realities of life either. Now, lastly, and related to this, Peter says that we have to actively resist our spiritual enemy by being firm in the faith. Now, notice that Peter doesn't say firm in faith. He says firm in the faith. So this isn't just about one's belief or one's feelings about God or even just one's theology, but it speaks to the ongoing active relationship with God. It's like the sum of the whole thing. Now, one of the saddest experiences I have as a pastor is listening to people open up about no longer believing in Jesus and the loss of their faith in general. Now, I'm always very thankful when someone trusts me enough to be open and honest about that. We've worked hard at Ridgeline to create a culture where it's okay to not be okay, where we don't have to suffer or struggle with our doubts in isolation and secrecy. You can be open about that here and honest about that here. This is a safe place. We believe that God is big enough for that. So I'm thankful when someone will open up to me about that, but it's also very heartbreaking. And so what happens is more often or not, I ask a few follow-up questions. And as I ask a few follow-up questions, what I find is there's often a very long history of neglecting that relationship. And by that, I mean, I've, I've never met a person whose faith went from, from vibrant to non-existent overnight. I've never seen that before. Instead, it is usually the result of a gradual neglect over time. And now when you also then factor in the reality of suffering, you are almost guaranteed a recipe for losing faith. And so here's what I say. Faith that isn't developed eventually dies. I want you to really, really capture that this morning and consider the urgency and the significance of that reality. Faith that isn't developed eventually dies. We do not cultivate spiritual practices, and we don't cultivate spiritual habits like prayer and scripture reading and meditation and silence and solitude and community and friendship. We don't, we don't cultivate these spiritual practices and habits in our lives out of religious obligation. We practice these things out of relationship. We do it as an act of resistance. There is a very real spiritual enemy who wants nothing more than to shipwreck your faith. And you can resist him every single day 
that you intentionally invest in your relationship with God. And while humility and alertness and this resistance are tiring and trying practices, and they are, Peter says they are not without reward. Listen with me as we finish up. Look at verse 10. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to this, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. Now, just before these closing personal greetings, Peter's explanation that a man named Sylvanus transcribed this letter that Peter dictated to him. I want you to notice that, that before all that, <clears throat> Peter follows that prescriptive instruction that we just read to the church with a powerful promise. He says that after they and we have suffered just a little while, meaning it's momentary, God himself will restore, establish, strengthen, and support us. Like, just think for a second about how amazing that is. How amazing that God himself promises to do this. He doesn't promise to send us an angel. He doesn't promise to send us a prophet. He's going to do this restoring, establishing, strengthening, and supporting work himself. And so as we close this series, this letter, and as we close this year, Here's, here's what I want you to know. After spending roughly five months with this letter and writing 15 teachings as of this morning, here's how I would summarize Peter's message in this letter. You ready? It's very, very simple. Hold on to hope. Help is coming. Hold on to hope. Help is coming. Friends, suffering is not our greatest threat. And suffering is not our worst enemy. You know what our greatest threat and our worst enemy is? It's despair. Because despair loses sight of who God is. And despair causes us to lose sight of all that God has promised. Despair causes us to lose sight of how faithful God has always been and has will prove himself to be again. And so Peter would plead with us to hold on to hope because help is coming. God feels every one of our hurts and God is with us in every single valley we walk through. God hears every cry for help. He is not blind. He is not indifferent. He is not deaf. He is with us and he is working. And so on the days where we struggle to see that, and on the days where we struggle to believe that, I want you to know, it is enough to just put your head down and to get through the day doing whatever good God has put in front of you. So on those mornings when you wake up, I've had a couple of these over the last few weeks, those days you wake up and you just feel this dread. Maybe you don't feel hope. Maybe you don't feel joy. Maybe you don't feel peace. Instead, maybe you feel depression, isolation, loneliness, 
uh, anxiety, fear, worry. On those mornings, you wake up feeling that, here's what you need to do. You need to wake up, tell God you're hurting. Tell him, tell him you're hurting. Then get up and go do your job. Or get up and do your schoolwork. Run your errands, check in on your friends, care for your family, and get some rest. Now, I understand that that may sound very, very simple. That does not sound like so many of the rah-rah messages that are out there right now about how to like hustle your way through 2020 or how to thrive in 2020. And it may not sound like a recipe for how to live your best life now, but I just don't see anywhere in scripture where God's looking for heroes. All I see is God looking for hearts. Broken, hurting, barely holding on hearts. That's enough. And so let's give him that. Let's give him our hearts, regardless of the condition that they're in. Every momentary suffering will eventually be eclipsed by the satisfaction of eternity with Christ. So hold on to hope because help is coming. I love you. Will you bow your head and let me pray for you one more time? Father, it is hard for us to see your presence, your work, your hand. We don't always feel that. And as a result, Lord, we, our inability to see, our inability to experience and to feel, sometimes it can be very difficult for us to believe. And so we just confess that openly. Lord, I pray over everyone who's watching or listening right now, I pray that right now that you would help them to be open and honest with you about their own struggle with trust and belief and faith and joy and hope. And I thank you that you are a God who is big enough to handle all that, to hold all that in your hands. And Lord, I pray that one of the things that you would teach us as we come to the end of this year and we approach the beginning of another that promises all of its own hardships and difficulties, Lord, teach us to practice radical, raw honesty with you about where we are, about what we're feeling or not feeling, about what we believe or what we don't believe. Just invite that from us, God. Welcome that as we pour that out to you and prove yourself big enough to handle all of it. And as we do that, Lord, I know that it does not always change our circumstances, but it does change us. And I pray that in that openness with you, you would instill hope in us and that you would give us the strength to hold on. Give us the strength to hold on. We hold on to hope in you. And Jesus, I, I pray for anyone listening who does not know you and is not currently following you. Lord, would you awaken their heart to faith? Help them to love you and to trust you and to, to, to know that you did live, die, and rise again because of your love for them, to make a way for them to follow you, to be renewed in you, for their hearts to be come alive to who you've created them to be. Lord, would you just call them to yourself this morning? We love you and we need you. We thank you again for your faithfulness to us over this difficult year. We trust that you will be faithful to us in the next. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.